As uh, you can tell, I'm not up there, I'm down here. And uh, I thought that the thing that I wanted to talk to you about this morning would be better talked about from down here than up there. So uh, we sent out the notes, and you've got them, and um, sorry. Uh, they're still appropriate, they're just uh, not gonna, I'm not going to follow them super closely. So, you know, here we are, it's uh, New Year's. We don't often have a uh, Sunday, or New Year's fall on an actual Sunday, so that's kind of neat to be here on the first day of the year. And uh, certainly the year 2016 was uh, an eventful year, wasn't it? You know, this time of year, you typically, newspapers, magazines, online journals, things like that, they produce lists of important events from the past year and so forth. And I like to read through those things because I have an incredibly short memory. And, and I think to myself, man, that really happened this year. It seems like it was forever ago. But yeah, indeed, it did. It happened, you know, in this just past year. And then others, of course, will tell you what they think 2017 is going to be about, and they'll make some kinds of predictions about events, particularly world events and things like that for 2017. So we have the past, we have the future, the past is done, the future is still being written. But one thing, as I've been just thinking about the end of the year and the beginning of the, of the new year, is there's this one constant that was there in the past and is going to be there in the future unless and until the Lord comes and rescues his people uh, and to be with him, and that is the battle with sin. Uh, 2016 was a battle with sin for all of us, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, for sure. 2017, I can promise you, will be uh, a battle as well. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is something I hope that is eminently practical as we head into a new year, and that is winning that battle with sin. So I can promise you, you're going to battle. And uh, that's, you know, that's not a hard prediction at all. But what I'd like to do is to, is to remind myself and you of a winning strategy for that upcoming battle. So, uh, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Romans. And uh, let it fall open, I guess, around Romans chapter 5. That's probably as good a place to let it fall open as any. And what I have for you, we will... um, Poor Don back there in the uh, media booth, brother. We're going to use the the, um, proposition and the outline, okay? So that much of it we will use. And and depending on time, probably some of that application at the end. But we'll kind of see how it works out, all right? Yeah, that's good. We didn't work this out ahead of time at all. So, what I want to look with you at this morning is uh, Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8, but I want to get a running start at that. And as we look together at Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8, there are to be found there, in, uh, one in each chapter, three essential and interlocking strategies, really, or steps that, that must be employed in order to win the battle with sin. All three of these steps are, are, are essential, and, and they interlock. That is, that, that each one presupposes the other and is related to the other. And so two out of three is not a winning strategy. You have to have all three. And there are not many different strategies uh, in order to, to win the battle with sin. There's really only one. 
There is only one, and, and we don't have to wonder what it is because God has made it very clear to us through his word here in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 exactly what these three steps are. What is this winning strategy to, to be able to combat sin and to, to win that battle, to win that battle with sin? So Romans is Paul's most systematic, most thorough presentation of the gospel to be found anywhere in all of his writings and, and uh, yea, anywhere in the entire New Testament. If you want an understanding of the gospel, the most comprehensive place to go to find that understanding, of course, is in the book of Romans. And in chapters 1 through the first part of chapter 3, Paul lays out his indictment of the entire human race and the fact that we lie in the grasp of the deadly grasp of sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So all of us are afflicted by this desperate and terrible disease called sin, and the result of sin is death, and so we all have a death sentence that hangs over us as a result of sin. Not just our own, and in fact, more profoundly, more deeply, more powerfully, the sin of Adam. It is Adam's sin that destroyed the human race in terms of selling it into bondage to sin. And then it is our sin, as we act out our nature that we have inherited from Adam, that we compound the problem and make Adam's rebellion our own in space and time. (coughs) Paul lays out that reality in chapters 1 through 3. The second half of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul lays out the only solution to this Uh, problem of sin, this deadly problem of sin, and it lies in the fact that we have to have a substitute. There must be a righteous one. There must be someone who can stand in for us. We need a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's own Son whom He sent into space and time, right, to live our life, to live the life we cannot live righteously before the Father, to die the death we deserve, And then because he died not for his sin but for ours, death could not hold the righteous one. He rose victorious over the grave on the third day. And by his resurrection, he freely offers to those who will embrace him by faith the power of that resurrection life. That is the message of Romans chapters 1 through the first part of (coughs) 5. Excuse me. But what I want to do is just draw your attention to chapter 5 and verse 12 and following, because Paul there speaks about a mystery. And the mystery that he speaks about is the the, uh, comparison of Adam and Christ. He introduces Adam and uses uh, Adam and his fall and the result of us being Uh, in Adam, in that fall, and the resulting sin, to introduce the concept of how one could, one's behavior, one's action could affect an entire posterity. So, as all die in Adam, Paul says, so also in Christ all may live. That is, that the, that the, the work of one has tremendous implications for the many. And so Paul here in verses 12 through the end of chapter 5 and verse 21, He speaks about two races of people. 
There is all of humanity in Adam, and then there are those who have been rescued out of Adam by grace through faith and have been placed in union with Christ. So a person, <coughs> pardon me, a person is either in Adam or he is in Christ. You cannot be both in Adam and in Christ. It is one or the other. It is darkness or it is light. It is, it is death or it is life. So you're not just a little bit alive or just a little bit dead. You're all the way dead or you're all the way alive, and it depends on who you are in union with. That's the point that Paul is making here in chapter 5 and beginning in verse 12 through the end of it. There are the in-Adam people, that is, those who live in the realm of Adam, and this is a realm that is, that is characterized by sin and death and the law which brings condemnation. Then there are those who, by grace, through faith, have been placed in Christ, and there in Christ they live the life of grace, the life of faith, and most importantly, the life of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who is the giver of life, the animator of life. So in Christ, we live in the realm of life. We live in the realm of the Spirit. We could say it another way, that in Adam... We live in the old age, and in Christ, we live in the age to come. In Adam, we are under the power of the old age, which is the power of sin and death. In Christ, we are under the power of the indwelling spirit, the power of the age to come, that is the power of life and righteousness. So there is this this, um, dichotomy that Paul speaks of here. Now, you might think that uh, from your own experience, that the, that the, the um, residual um, hangover of that old age, now you can't be in both, right? You're either here or you're here. So if you're in Christ, you are within your soul a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You, you have within you the, the, the living spirit of God. You are the power of the age to come. But we drag with us, we drag with us from that old age the tendencies, the uh, thought patterns, the habits of the, of the old age, of the, of, the, of the life of death and sin. We, we tend to drag that with us over here. And so we are completely and totally new. But we have this, this um, hangover that we have drug over here into the life to come. Now, you might think here in the old age that the power of sin is so strong, so powerful, that, you know, what could overcome it? And and Paul's answer is, well, Christ overcomes that, and it is to the glory of God. And in fact, what Paul says here, down at the end of chapter 5, he says, um, I will pick it up in verse 18, he says, so then, as through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So there you see the the one and the many. For uh, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Basically what Paul is saying is wherever sin was, God floods it with grace. 
And the more there is sin, the more grace that he floods it with. And God delights in displaying his grace. It brings him glory. It brings him glory. So Paul begins now in chapter 6 to turn the corner, having laid that foundation of these two ages, these two realms, these two figures, these two individuals in which you are united, one or the other, and he begins to speak about the implications of the fact that we are no longer here as followers of Christ, we are here. So playing off of or, or following up on the, on the statement that wherever you know, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and literally superabounds, uh, one could come up with the crazy idea that since uh, God uh, loves to display his grace because it brings him glory, and sin is, the, is what brings that about, then now why not have a lot of sin so God will flood it with a lot of grace, which will bring him a tremendous amount of glory? Kind of interesting math, huh? Right? You can kind of get the best of both worlds. I like to sin. God likes to give grace. You know, it could be a good deal. Everybody could be happy. And so uh, Paul sort of voices this, this uh, idea. And I believe what he's doing here, by the way, is, is uh, voicing uh, something that has been thrown in his face by his Jewish opponents as he has been going around presenting the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he answers it in verse 2, may it never be. May it never be. The, the strongest negation that you'll find in the Greek. He's basically saying, no, 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 no. Well, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? He's asking a rhetorical question here. What he is saying when he says died to sin, the, the, the idea here is, is that we have been, been separated from sin, right? When, we, when someone dies, we say they've passed away. We use that expression, right? They've passed away. Death is separation. Spiritual death is separation of the spirit from God. Physical death that you and I know is a separation of the body uh, and the spirit, right? So death is separation. We talked about, you know, someone passes away. And what Paul's saying is, how shall we who have passed from this realm to this realm, how shall we who have been separated from Adam and now united to Christ, how shall we still live like we, we belong over here? He's saying that is ridiculous. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. Or do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, literally immersed into Christ, plunged into Christ, this is a dry verse, by the way, there's no water here, okay, but baptism is, uh, is the first sign of obedience for a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's something that we do. And it symbolizes, even in the, in the immersion of baptism, right, the, the death and the resurrection to the newness of life, the plunging in and, and rising up again. So how shall we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, excuse me, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been immersed into the death of Christ. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united to him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. What Paul is saying is that we were immersed into Christ. By the power of the Spirit of God, we were united with Christ, we were placed in Christ, and when Christ died, he died the death by the old realm and rose to newness of life to enter into the age to come, the, 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 the age of the Spirit, the new realm. And because by grace, through faith, we have been united with him, his death is my death, his death is your death, and his resurrection is my resurrection, his resurrection is your resurrection. Just as certainly as Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again, to live forevermore as the first fruit of the resurrection and of the age to come, so we too, by grace, through faith, in union with him, share what he has. He shares it with us. The life of the age to come. The life of the Spirit. So we know this about ourselves, Paul says. If we understand the gospel, if we understand what Jesus has done, then we understand this. We know that we don't belong over here anymore. We belong over here. We can't go back here anymore. The turnstile goes in one direction. You cannot become unborn again. So when, when when the work of the Spirit uh, happens in your heart, right? You are regenerated from above, John 3, right? The, the, age, the power of the age to come floods your soul. You move from this realm to this realm, and you can never go back to this realm again. Never. Okay? That door only opens one way. You go through it, it slams shut, and you can never go back through it again. You will forever have the power and life of the age to come. Now, as I said, we... We drag a lot of things with us through the doorway, right? We bring, we bring habits, we bring the, um, um, dispositions, we, we, we bring uh, thought patterns, we, you know, we bring certain behaviors and thoughts and things like that from the old realm with us into the new realm, and Paul's going to address that, right? He's going to say, that's not supposed to be, but know this, you're not some days here and some days here, and, and sometimes you think maybe you lean in there, you know? No, you're here. This is huge. This is huge. This is, um, I guess I was supposed to say that, right? This is something you have to believe. That was the first point. Something you have to believe. Okay, that's the first essential step. You have to believe something. What is it you have to believe? You have to believe that you are no longer here. Okay? By the work of Christ, you no longer live here. You now are here. You are, you are a citizen. You are a resident. You have within your soul the spirit of the living God and the power of the age to come. Verse 7, For he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died has, is uh, freed for sin. Freed from sin. And... What that means is, is, that, is that he who has died with Christ and raised to newness of life with Christ has been freed from the power that 
old age. It can't, it can't hang on to us anymore. It has no authority over us anymore. A year or so ago, uh, Carol and I sold our house, and, and, uh, and now we're renting. And so uh, we have a landlord. And what that means is that every month we have to pay the rent to the landlord, right? That's kind of what you have to do as a renter. You have to pay the rent. We're under legal obligation to pay the rent. We're, we're under the authority of the landlord. We have to pay the rent. Well, if my landlord were to sell the house to someone else, right, then, then I would have to pay my rent. I'd be legally obligated to pay my rent to the new owner of the house, not the old owner. Now, what if the old owner came up and knocked on the door and after having sold the house and said, hey, pay the rent? I can say, I don't have to pay the rent because you have no authority over me. You're not my landlord anymore. I don't live under your rule and authority anymore. I don't have to pay the rent. It's the same idea with sin. Okay? When we're living here, when this is our status, we are dead in Adam then we have no, uh, no ability to, to not sin. Sin holds power over us. We're, we're slaves. We must obey sin. We have, we have no choice in the matter. And, we, and not only do we have no choice in the matter, uh, we desire to do it anyway. But here in the new realm, sin is the old landlord. So when sin comes knocking, pay the rent, we can say, Get behind me, Satan, right? You don't have authority over me anymore. I don't have to pay the rent. What am I trying to say here? What I'm trying to say is that old disposition, that old thought pattern, that old habit that used to represent the life of in, in the old realm might come knocking at my door. And it's not might. It will. It will come knocking at my door, won't it? Certain temptation, you know, whatever, a look, a word, a thought, yeah, all kinds of stuff. It comes knocking at my door, but, but I don't have to pay. I don't have to pay. If I do, it's because in that moment I'm denying the reality of what has really happened. Okay? I am freed from that. Now, throughout this section, Paul is going to, to uh, talk a lot about the law. Okay? He's going to talk a lot about the law, and I don't have time in all of this. And by the way, I got a hundred, not a hundred, but I got, my goodness, I don't know how many, probably 30 sermons, 40 sermons on chapters you know, five, six, seven, and eight, or whatever. So if you want to go to the website and get the long version, you can certainly go there and, and check it out. But throughout this section, uh, Paul will be continually talking about the law because the law is the power and force of this age, not this age. Okay, so he will be contrasting this. This is the, this is the, this is the age that lives under the power of the law. Not here. So, to illustrate the reality that we have been severed from this age and the law that relates to it, and we have been joined to a new power in a new age, in chapter 7, just kind of look at that, chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul gives an illustration of this very reality. Now, a lot of people look at chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3, and they say, oh yeah, here's Paul's teaching on divorce. And, um, and I would say to myself, well, no, it's really not. Because talk about being out of context, okay? He, he's not introducing some teaching on divorce. What he is doing is he is illustrating from the, the condition of marriage 
the reality of moving from one realm to another. And what he basically says is, as long as a woman is married to her husband, i.e. living in this age, she's under the authority of her husband, that is under the authority of the power of this age. When she dies or excuse me, he dies, right? I gotta get the illustration right. When, when he dies, she has been severed from him and she no longer, she's free to remarry. The idea being is that, is that when Christ died and, and I died with him, I have been severed from this and I have been moved to this and I'm no longer under that authority anymore. I'm free to live and to be united, as it were, to a new husband, if you like to push the metaphor out, okay? I'm united to Christ here in the new age. All right, so 7, 1 to 3 is just an illustration of this reality. So back to chapter 6. He says, I better take my watch off because who knows where this could go. <laughs> All right, so now, if we, have, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him, right? I told you, the door only goes in one direction, only swings in one way. The gate only goes this way. The turnstile only turns this way. Death can no longer be master over Christ. Christ cannot die again, and we who are united to Christ cannot die again either. For the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So this is just a presentation of of what I've been trying to illustrate to you here, right? The two realms, the realm of Adam, sin, death, and the law, the realm of Christ, which which is grace, life, and the Spirit. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Legizomai. Uh, translated here, consider yourself. It, it could be translated to think seriously about, to ponder, to reckon. It's translated that way. It has the idea of, of spend some time, give some serious mental thought to the reality of what has happened here. We talk a lot about preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? We use that terminology, but sometimes I think we don't decide, define it very well, and so people go, oh, yeah, yeah, I preach the gospel to myself. Well, I don't even know what that means. Okay, all right, well, here's part of what it means. What it means is to, is to think about, to preach to yourself, the reality is that, that if you're a child of God this morning, you don't live here anymore. That's your old address. This is your new address. There isn't any going back. Okay, that door turned one way for you, and here you are here in the new realm. You are a citizen of the kingdom to come, if you like. Okay, so think seriously about this, reckon this to be true, and then act on it. Salvation is by grace through what? Faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. Sanctification is by grace through faith. Okay, because it's part of the gospel. The gospel is not something that, that is, applies to us to, to save us. And then we move on to higher, bigger, and better things. We are not saved by grace and sanctified by struggle. We are sanctified, we are made like Christ by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God who is the, the, the power of the age to come. He, he, this is the age of the Spirit. The age of the Spirit, right? At Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out. He now resides and takes up 
his residence within us. He is, the, he is the down payment. He is the earnest of what God will finally do. But God has done by giving us his spirit. So think about that, Paul says. And then therefore, in light of that, begin to act. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. You see it? Okay? Think about this. Remember this. Ponder this. Consider this. Um, Cling to this. Reality that you're not here, you're here, and therefore, don't behave like you're still here. That's what Paul is saying. Okay, so, so we have to believe something. All right, that's the first um, step in the battle. We have to believe something. What we have to believe is that we have died and risen with Christ, in union with Christ. We are, a, we are a citizen of his coming kingdom. We are a resident of the age to come. The spirit of the age to come resides and inhabits our hearts. Now, the rest of chapter 6, I don't have time to handle, but Paul basically is going to work out the, the, the practical aspect there of, of, um, of uh, how do you present yourself you know, as an instrument of righteousness and so forth. So then he goes on to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he, um, he speaks to uh, what I believe are the Jewish Christians here in Rome. And now there are differences of opinion, to be sure in Romans chapter 7, about who he's actually addressing. Because what we find in chapter 7 is this continuing discussion of the law. We just find the law at all. It's all through chapter 7. And now we're all, you know, we're all familiar with chapter 7 because, uh, you know, verse 24, chapter 7, wretched man that I am, right? That, that cry of sort of dereliction. And, and there are some that believe and teach that, that uh, what is going on here in chapter 7 is the struggle that a mature Christian believer has between that, that uh, residual hangover, right? Those thoughts, those, those behaviors, those, um, those uh, habits from the old realm that, that we still drag with us into the new. And that that's what Paul is talking about there. Okay? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. What Paul is doing here, okay, is he is, he, is, um, he is speaking on behalf of a people group. When he uses the, 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 the personal pronoun I, he is not speaking autobiographically. He is, he is speaking as one who stands in for others. And in the first part here of, of, of chapter 7, verses uh, 4 through uh, 13, he, he talks about Israel and, and Israel's uh, relationship to the law of Moses before salvation. And, and the basic point of all of this is, uh, verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And, and basically what Paul is saying here is that the law of Moses, given to restrain sin, actually uh, is used by sin, because sin is so sinful, it is used by sin as a beachhead into people's lives. And, it, and, it, and that which should be a blessing from God actually becomes a means by which they, they die. It brings upon them the condemnation because it inflames their sin. It inflames their sin. 
How about it? Yeah, imagine this. Imagine um, in front of my house, I've got a gigantic picture window. Beautiful picture window. You know, about 10 feet of glass, about six feet high, you know, and it's just gorgeous. And um, where our rental house is, it's uh, relatively close to the street, so a lot of people walk by on the sidewalk and so forth. So just imagine that we, that we would have this gigantic plate glass window, you know, real close to the street. And imagine if we put a sign right in the middle of the window that said, do not throw a rock through this window. What do you think would happen? Yeah, it wouldn't take long, would it? Because that's what the law does. It inflames sin. You're not telling me what to do. You know, it just sort of draws it out. It provides this beachhead. And so Paul is addressing that here in the first part of chapter 12 among the unbelieving Jewish people. Then he transitions here, in, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. He is still uh, speaking in the first person, but I believe he is, he is uh, speaking representatively for the Jewish believers in Rome. Now, if you, if you slide ahead in Romans uh, uh, to chapter 14, we're introduced to the whole issue, right, of the weaker brother. Remember that? You get the whole weaker brother thing, you know, some think they can eat meat, some think they can't. You know, Paul gives a lot of instruction to all of this. Okay, but he never really addresses in that area the weaker brother in terms of how do you not be a weaker brother? Because, listen, being a weaker brother is not a good place to be. It's not an enviable state. It's not like, hey, you know, there's two states as a Christian. I can be a stronger brother or I can be a weaker brother, and they're just equally cool. They're not. They're not. We're all to be strong believers. The, the, the weaker brother is a, is, a, is a stage of infancy out of which one must grow and pass. But Paul doesn't give any instruction there in, in 14 and 15 on how to do that. That's because here is the instruction on how to do that. Okay? He, he has spoken of it here. Why? Because it fits in the context and flow of his thoughts. So here in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, he personalizes the Jewish Christian who still can't get away from the law. He is the weaker brother here. And so he, he, says, um, he says, I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. But I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not, do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, then I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So he's continuing to talk about how sin uses the law, even in the life of a Christian, as a beachhead to, to continually frustrate them and draw out from them uh, that which is not pleasing to God, sin. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. When he talks about the principle here, he's just saying is, is that this, this reality could be spoken of as a principle because we all uh, experience it to one level or another to, uh, when we, like the Jewish Christians here, try to use rules, and that's supposed to be my second point. Uh, sorry about this, uh, messing up the outline here, but um, when we try to use rules to restrain sin. So that was the second point, right? First one was we have to believe something. Second one was we have to reject something. And uh, I didn't write that very well. You must reject something. Uh, the way that's written, rules will not restrain sin, seems to be the thing you're supposed to reject. And actually, what that should say is you must reject something. Rules cannot restrain sin. Okay, that's the way it should, see, 
should write like that, okay? So make that little change for me, okay? This is what you have to reject. You have to reject the idea that rules can restrain sin. They don't restrain sin in the unbeliever. They don't restrain sin in the believer. I joyfully concur, verse 22, with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That is, uh, that is uh, this dominating power of the old age. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, on the one hand, with my mind, I am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. Wretched man that I am. I'm a citizen here. And yet I'm trying to use a principle that belongs over here. To, to, to live here. I'm, I'm trying to drag over the law to here. And, and when I do that, all I find is frustration. Okay, now, we're not under the law of Moses. You know, most people wouldn't try to argue that we are, but, but the principle remains the same. Beloved, we're, we're, most of us, are, we're rule keepers. We love rules. We love to reduce our spirituality to lists, to rules. I do this, I don't do that, right? Why? Because it's, 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 uh, it's satisfying. It's, that, it's, a, it's a way we can measure progress. Doing pretty good, you know. I keep these rules and I don't do these things. And but the problem is it doesn't restrain sin. It can't restrain it here. It can't restrain it here. And so when we when we approach the Christian life that way, what we find is is that we are in this continual state of agitation, confusion, and conflict. Right? What I want to do, I don't end up doing, and the thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And Paul says, wretched man that I am. By the way, I don't, yeah, I don't believe this is autobiographical at all. If it's autobiographical, then Paul just forgot what he taught himself or taught us in chapter 6. Third point. Yeah, third point. Okay, so you must believe something, you must reject something. Third, you must do something. Chapter 8. Believe something. You died with and rose with Christ. You, you were here, you're now here. Believe that and act on it. Chapter 7, don't drag the principles from here over to here and try to live the spiritual life in the power of the old age. So how do I live the spiritual life? How do I live a life pleasing to God? Chapter 8. Chapter 8 answers the question. Okay? Chapter 8 is dominated by the word Spirit. It is dominated by the word spirit 21 times in chapter 8. The most times in the entire New Testament in one chapter, we have the use of the word spirit. Chapter 8 is about the work of the Spirit of God who is the power of the age to come. All right? Verse 8, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1, there, there is, or excuse me, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what? We're not under condemnation because we're not here anymore. If you're here, you are under condemnation. If you're here, you're not under condemnation. Even when we slip and fall, we're not under condemnation. God, God is not angry towards us when we slip and fall. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now what Paul is going to do is he's going to introduce here from this point forward, the next few verses, a a contrast back and forth between two kinds of people, flesh people and spirit people. Flesh people and spirit people. He's going to go back and forth between them. All right? And what he's going to say here is that flesh people are under a death sentence. In fact, flesh people are people who live here. That's just another way to talk about people who live in union with Adam, who are part of the old age, who are living under the condemnation of the old age. Right? For the mindset on the flesh is death, but contrast, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. I'm in verse 6. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? So he is, he is back and forth here. However, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone is not of the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness... But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so you're not here, you're not flesh people, you're spirit people. Spirit people. Spirit of God is within me. He's within you. Because of that reality, there's an obligation. Verse 12, so then, brethren, because you don't live here anymore, but you live here, because you're not under the law, but you're living with the indwelling Spirit of God within you, right, in the age of the Spirit, because of that, so then, brethren, we are under, look at the word, obligation. There is an obligation that comes to those who live in this realm, in the new life. The new realm. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are sons of God. We're under obligation by the Spirit, verse 13, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, the old theologians called this mortification, mortifying sin, putting sin to death, okay? Because I live here, my new residence, my new address, because of the Spirit of God who is the Spirit of life, the Spirit of holiness who lives within me, I am under obligation to live out my new residency. And that is to kill that stuff which I have drug over with me. I'm to kill it. And in fact, John Owen, who wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, wonderful book, will say in his book that if um, you need to be killing it, or it will be killing you. There's no truce that can be had here. It's like falling in a foxhole with the enemy and there's a knife at the bottom of the hole. 
All right? And you both go for the knife. Only one person's coming out of the hole alive. Okay? And so that's the picture. He's saying we need to recognize that we need to, we need to put to death everything that we have drug over. We need to be putting it to death. We need to be fighting against it. Hard stuff. Hand-to-hand. Brutal at times. Okay? Mortifying our sin. In fact, in, uh, just turn ahead to uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, where Paul carries the same idea over there. Where are we at here? Yeah, close. Okay. Um, yeah, 524 of Galatians, where Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also... Walk by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Okay? Well, to walk is, a, is just a metaphor to live. It's just to live. So what it means is to walk in the Spirit or walk by the Spirit is to, is to, is to live, to move in the same direction the Spirit is going. That's what it means. It's simple. Okay? It means to pursue after what the Spirit of God is pursuing after. And what is the Spirit of God pursuing after? Speak to me. Yeah, holiness, sanctification. The likeness of Christ. Okay? And so that's what the Spirit is after. And so that's what we are. When we're to walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, we're to be pursuing, we're to be going in the same direction the Spirit's going towards those things and away from this. And as this stuff tries to grab my belt and pull me back, you know, I've got to get out the knife and, you know, whack it. And how often do I have to whack it? Speak to me. Yeah, daily, all the time, right? Because... Man, I thought I'd cut that hand off, you know? It just, just keeps hanging on. But it's that fight. It's fight. Now, I can offer you some encouragement in this, beloved, because the, the, the more um, vigorous you are in the fight, the more progress you'll find. Okay? The more slothful you are in the fight, the less progress you'll find. You can't go back here. Listen, it can't get your belt and drag you back through that door. Okay? It can't. But, I mean, your life here, you know, you can have all kinds of dead stuff hanging off you. It's not fun. So the more vigorous we are, the more progress we'll make. Okay, but, we, but we never go back through the door. Now, uh, you see the same idea, by the way, and uh, just look at it quickly. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. This inhabits Paul's writings because this is the gospel. This is like not some gospel 1.1 kind of thing. This is the gospel. Uh, uh, Did I say Colossians? I meant to. Colossians 3.5, where Paul there says, Therefore, in light of this, right, Um, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, and there's some translational question here, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, and so forth, Right? So maybe you just need to, uh, Paul may be saying you just need to think that way. Uh, or another way to translate it is just to put to death. More active verb. Put it to death. Okay? So, but it's the same basic idea. Back to Romans. I think I might actually finish this. That's amazing. Here we go. That's why I abandoned the notes, by the way. I thought, you know, I had so many pages of notes, it was ridiculous. My wife said, what are you preaching? I said, I don't preach Romans 6, 7, and 8. She kind of looked at me, and you know, she raises the eyebrow. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? You know, the, like the eyebrow goes up? 
like, really? Yeah, really. Let's do it. Then this morning, I uh, took my notes and I tore them in half. Then I had to do it. So, where am I now? Um, oh, so, uh, so yeah, so there's this active reality here of, of, um, of mortifying sin. Now, let me just finish this, and I've got a couple of things. I'm going to get to that, uh, Don, here in a minute. Um, I just want you to, to kind of just see how it fits together with the rest of the chapter here. So, so he talks about how, we're, you know, we're, we're um, by our union with Christ, we now can speak to the Father the way the Son speaks to the Father. We can call him Abba Father, right? We, we, are, we are adopted sons, okay? And, uh, you know, we're not adopted sons and daughters. Listen, we're adopted sons, okay? And you should rejoice in that reality, ladies, that you are an adopted son of God because what it means is you are in the same status as the very son of God himself, okay? So don't let that offend you because it doesn't offend me when I'm called the bride of Christ, okay? So just, <laughs> all right, doesn't bother me. Actually, I kind of think it's pretty cool. So you should be okay with being sons of God and calling him Abba, Father, all right? So how long does this stuff go on? Well, Paul says uh, here that uh, beginning in verse 18, and he goes on the way, and he says, you know, I consider the sufferings of the present time not worthy to be prepared to the glory to come. It's going to go on a long time until Christ is revealed, is his basic point, right? He'll be revealed in the creation, will be put back in order and so forth. So how long is this going to go on? Until Jesus comes. That's how long the fight goes. It goes until Jesus comes. Well, I'm going to get, you know, I, I get tired. I might, I might um, you know, um, poop out in the middle. And, and Paul says, no, you're not going to do that. Don't worry about that. Why? Because look over here, right? Because in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. You see that? Right? Those he called, these he justified whom he justified, he glorified. He speaks of it as a completed reality. Okay, don't worry. Don't worry. You're not going to fall back through the door. You're not going to gas out in the middle here. Okay? Because God has predestined this reality for you. And it is the spirit of the living God who is within you, who is empowering you forward. Right? It is not saved by, by grace and sanctified by struggle. It is, a, it is work. It is struggle. But it, but it is a successful struggle because the, the, the life-giving power of the Spirit of God animates that. And by the way, he's interceding for us, right? Verses 26 and 27, he's interceding for us. We've got like all the resources of the Godhead on our side. Okay? So, so why is it I fall down? Why is it I fall down? Because I do. I'll tell you, I, I, here's why I fall down. It's really is there one of two reasons. I fall down either because I've forgotten the gospel in that moment. Okay? Not like I've, I've, um, not like I've forgotten my father's birthday. I mean, I know what my father's birthday is, but, you know, it kind of eludes me at times. So I've, I've forgotten the gospel in that moment, or I've doubted it. I've doubted it. When I, when I fall... That's what has happened to me, is I have lost sight of the gospel for that mo- in that moment, in that split moment. Or I have doubted that God is going to give me everything he's promised me in Christ, and therefore, I feel like I need to take something now. I mean, it's, it's ultimately a worship thing. Am I going to worship him? Am I going to worship me? 
So, um, Don, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. You got my note. How many of you have get the notes? Let me see what this looks like. Yeah. All right, I'll do a couple of them. So, practically speaking, how do you how do you do that? Well, these are, these are some things that have been helpful to me. Okay, I don't offer them to you as law. I don't say, you know, all right, so here's a new set of regs, man. Write them down, check them off, do them. Uh, Carol and I read through the Bible every year together. Uh, by God's grace, uh, he's enabled us to do that for decades. Uh, I just have to tell you, I don't think there's anything, anything more important to our spiritual health and growth in the likeness of Christ and in, in our relationship with one another than to read the Bible together out loud for years. Uh, it's January 1st. We started again today. We, start, we pick a new plan, you know, keep it, keep it fresh and interesting. And uh, so today we read Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Right? What's the Psalm 1 man? Psalm 1 man is the, is the man who saturates himself in the Word of God. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. Listen, but I, I, can't, I can't encourage you more, I don't think, I don't know how to, than to, than to say to do this is to, is we need to saturate ourselves in the Word of God. Saturate yourself in the Word of God. Just wash your mind and your heart regularly, deeply, systematically in the Word of God. Let the Spirit of God use His Word to flood your soul. And read your Bible not to know about God, but to know God. And there is a difference. When you start seminary, they always warn you, you know, that seminary can become cemetery. And, and what they mean by that is, is that you can fill your head with so much knowledge about God, you begin to study Him like, a, like a, some sort of a science experiment, rather than, rather than reading the Bible to know God. So as you read, read to know Him. Read to know Him. Uh, boy, I had a bunch here. Uh, what do I want to say? Um, Maybe this, don't resist, don't resist the Spirit's influence in your life. Don't resist the Spirit's influence in your life. When the Spirit prompts you, in particular uh, in the realm of confession, when the Spirit prompts you, uh, you know when you have sinned. And when the Spirit reveals that to you, you need to go, Jesus says this, leave your offering at the altar, right, and go and be reconciled. Don't resist the Spirit's influence. He's walking this way. You're walking with him. When he reveals, and it's often through his word, could be through another person, but right? At that point in time, do it. Do it. So practically speaking, husbands and wives, okay? Listen, it could be, in your mind, like 99% her fault, right? I mean, it usually is, isn't it, guys? I mean... It could legit be 99% her fault. Who cares? It's unimportant. 
Okay, the moment you know there's a problem, there's sin, something's entered into the relationship, there's a barrier, there's a blockage, act on it. Humble your heart, act on it. Okay? Don't, don't let the inner defense lawyer, you know, you've got him on permanent retainer. Don't let him come out, prepare his brief. Okay, and he's fast. So you've got to move on this thing. Um... Maybe two more. I'll just say this. Um, uh, flee temptation. Flee temptation. Avoid the places, the persons, and the situations in which temptation is found. And that's different for different, you know, we all have our places. Okay? So I'm not giving you a set of rules. I'm just telling you, listen, you know where it is. You know where it is. Don't go there. Don't, don't even drive by it. Figuratively or Literally. And the last, I think, what I just want to leave you with is to, is to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Be thankful to God. Right? In everything. Listen, our God is all the time good. Amen? Our God does everything well. Amen? So in that, I can rejoice and be thankful. Even when it really, really hurts. Even when I think maybe I'm going to die, it hurts so much. But our God does everything good. Everything good. Listen, I just, let me drive this home for you for just a second. We will take communion together. Uh, Romans chapter 1. I just want to point something out to you. I want you just along this line of how important Thanksgiving is. Here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul is, is detailing the, the plight of the lost, okay? the, the, the one without God, and what characterizes the one without God. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That's what I want you to see. They did not give thanks. The heart of faith is, the, is a thankful heart. So when we find ourselves ungrateful, complaining, discontented, and all of the things that all of us, you know, struggle with, okay, when that thing's grabbing your belt, just understand what's going on and give thanks to God for wherever you find yourself because God is at work in you. He has promised you that he has predestined you to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that means that everything that is going on in your life, even that which is not good, right? Because Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that, that there's plenty of stuff that's not good, but God causes it to work together for good to make us like Jesus Christ. So be thankful that God loves you so much that he is bringing pain into your life in order to make you like Christ. Because if he gave you a simple, easy, uh, comfortable, uh, pain-free, stress-free, problem-free life, you would not be like your Savior. You'd not be like your Savior. Okay? It's, it's, that's the gospel. And that difference is all the difference in the world. All right. Gentlemen, if you want to get those trays for me. God has also given us this, beloved, this, um, this wonderful meal. Simple. 
really simple. Simple elements, right? The bread and the cup, these are the ordinary elements of the, the first century meal. And God has given us these things, and he has done so that we might have a visual reminder of what Jesus has done for us. So when we take the bread and we drink the cup, we declare the Lord's death when? Until he comes. Well, what we're declaring here is that, is that God loves me so much that he sent his son to die in my place. And so when I drink this cup and I eat this bread and I'm reminded of the incredible sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on my behalf, my faith is renewed. My faith is renewed. Okay? So this, this meal is a, is a renewal kind of meal. Why? Because God knows I'm forgetful. He knows that, that the stuff comes at me in life and you know, I get off kilter and, and other things catch my attention. And so he, he gives me this to bring me back. To bring me back. So I'm going to pray and you know, men are going to pass out the elements and so forth. And you have a few, you know, a few moments of quietness. Of, um, very quiet because we haven't arranged a pianist. Have we? Oh, we have. Okay. Nice. Something quiet, please. Good. Um, just in those moments, just thank God. Thank God. You know what? Let me suggest this to you. Thank God for 2016 and each and every bit of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And thank God that he's with you going into 2017. And that the gospel is still all the way true. And God is all the way good. Yeah, let's pray. Father, you are all good. You are a loving, kind, merciful, gracious, heavenly Father. And, and you've extended yourself to us through Christ by his sacrifice and the power of, of his resurrection life and the indwelling of your spirit, we can call you Abba. We, we, can, we can enter into the same kind of inter-Trinitarian love relationship that you and the Son and the Spirit enjoy one to an, with another. Father, we're just stunned. You would share that with us. And so as we take this meal together, we're just reminded of what Jesus did for us. As we go into that new year, we go into this new year, may that reality be an anchor of our soul. May you help us to, to have some victories this year, Father. We don't ask that the fight would end because we know it won't end until Christ returns. But Father, help us to make progress this year. We ask it for Jesus' sake, amen. Near the end of the, uh, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, there's a number of psalms there that are called the Songs of Ascent. A-S-C-E-N-T, actually, Ascents. Okay? And they were, they were songs that would be recited by the, um, the Israelites after the return from the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, as they would, would enter the city to celebrate the festivals. They would be singing these, the pilgrims, as they would come in, as they were heading up to Jerusalem. And in Psalm 121, they say, uh, the song here, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. As we take of this, we celebrate the fact that we don't live here anymore. This is not our address. We live here. This is our address. And God is committed to us. So committed, He sent His own Son. Listen, He will keep you. Your God will keep you. And He will accomplish great things in you. As you believe and act on that belief. Let's eat and celebrate, beloved. Once again, I have held you long, but you are most gracious. So God bless you. Have a really great new year. And we'll see you next week for Stones of Remembrance.